We're continuing in our series called Pleading the Fifth, and it's a study of the first four chapters of Romans, and we didn't arbitrarily choose those chapters. Uh, Romans is a very calm, methodical progression through the notion of the Christian life, and the first four chapters are anchored around this question, what does it mean to be declared righteous in the sight of God? That is, that's fundamentally, uh, when we talk about getting to heaven or salvation, fundamentally where we're getting to is standing right before the Lord. And the first four chapters of Romans really wrestles with that. It moves from there, five through seven, begin to deal with sanctification. Now that we're a believer, how then, why do we still sin? And how does the Lord work through that? That's the next question that Paul goes to. And on and on he begins to work through these questions. But for now we're in this question of what does it mean to stand right before the Lord? Or how is it that people get to heaven? How do we enter into the eternal presence of the Lord? And so I want to start this morning, instead of with an introduction, I want to start with a question, which is this. How does a just and righteous God reconcile himself to sinful people? Because if we're going to spend the rest of eternity together, that's a pretty important question. How, if we all, we all agree, I think, generally speaking, people who believe in God believe that God is just and good. How does a fully just and good God tolerate um, fellowship with sinful people? That's an important question for religion in general. The religions of the world wrestle with this question, and you'll find all sorts of people on different parts of the spectrum. So if you went to one extreme end of the spectrum, you would find the religion, though he would hate, he'd roll over in his grave if he knew I was saying this, but you'd find the religion of Friedrich Nietzsche, who would say there is no God, and there is no such thing as righteousness. God is dead. That's what Friedrich Nietzsche said, after which... God said, Nietzsche is dead. Um, but Friedrich Nietzsche would, would that, that joke just fell flat. That was a better joke, right? Friedrich Nietzsche said, there is no God. Let's just be honest about it. And while I disagree with Nietzsche, I believe that God has made his personhood knowable and known so that it is plain to us and we are without excuse. I believe that God is in the hearts of men, that we were made to worship and that's intrinsic. So I re- the while I reject Nietzsche, there is a respectable honesty about his position. It is in and of itself a coherent argument. He draws coherent deductions from his position. That if there is no God, then there is no right and wrong. And if there is no right and wrong, then I can do whatever I want. I am the sole agent of my destiny. I, my own self-preservation, if that's what I want, is my chief goal. That's, that's the far end of the spectrum. So it deals with the question of righteousness by abolishing the notion of righteousness. If you came a little bit closer our direction, you would arrive at the, the next stop, which we has been given this name, moral therapeutic deism. That's a respectable phrase uh, given to uh, the junk food theology of America. 
is essentially what it's been given to. To um, the religion of essentially the younger generation that's rising up. Which has in its mind the most basic notion that there is some kind of divine God out there who wants to do good things for us, who had better do good things for us, or is not worth being God. And that he kind of saves everybody. So to the question of Nietzsche, who goes to heaven, Nietzsche would say nobody does. To the moral therapeutic deist, the question of who goes to heaven, they would say, well, everybody does. Everybody but Hitler. Hitler always is the fall guy. But it is, it's distinctly untheological. It's like, it's like Nietzsche meets the view. It's just junk food theology um, that we live with. And it really is, it's, you can't hardly even argue against it because it, it has no power. It, it kind of responds with an adolescent whatever to a theological conversation. It just believes that God is around and he likes to do good things for good people. And if you just have faith in whatever you want to have faith in, you're going to go to heaven because otherwise, what, what's the point of God if he's not serving us? That's moral therapeutic deism. You realize it's not really that moral except for kind of a well-wishing of goodness, kind of a, a smurfiness, hope for the world. Okay? That's the next step. Then there is... Um, Another step, I'm, I, this is steps, I think, in increasing sophistication towards right, the idea of righteousness. It would be towards the pagan religions, which I do think are more sophisticated than American moral therapeutic deism. Because the pagan religions at least acknowledge that the god or gods have some power over them and are not at their beckoned every w- call that God was not created for mankind, but that God is above mankind and needs to be satiated and satisfied. We need to feed the gods. And so paganism is not distinctly moral. It can be amoral, but it is certainly about satisfying the gods. So it doesn't have a distinct moral view of righteousness, but it does have a sense of homage before the divine. And that shows up in all kinds of shapes and, and sizes and colors around the world. Uh, but it shows up in America too. This is the kind of religion um, that people pray when they get stuck trapped in an elevator. They pray to the elevator god. You know, the person who's pretty much irreligious but superstitious. So they don't really think about things, but until they're trapped in an elevator or until they have a final exam or until they find out they're unexpectedly pregnant, then they pray to the, the according god of unexpected pregnancy or to the God of the final exam, they pray to that God, and maybe it's one God, and he, he does multiple jobs, but they try to, and then they'll oftentimes barter with him. If you, this is paganism. This is exactly how paganism works. If you do this, I will bring this. People say there's no such thing as no, no atheists and foxholes. That, that's true, but it not, doesn't necessarily mean that foxholes turn people into Christians. It may just get them to become pagans. Okay, if we take one more step closer, we get to something akin to Hinduism, which uh, actually now begins to ask questions about moral righteousness. And there is, to me, an ele- I don't agree with Hinduism, I'm not a Hindu, but there is an elegant sophistication 
in Hinduism, and it's this, that it recognizes that righteousness is a thing that's far off and that it will take you several lifetimes to get there. I, I, that is, at its face, to me, admirable. To think that the notion of righteousness is something that we could never expect to attain in one lifetime, that we would need several or many lifetimes to achieve it, that you need to go around and around, hence the wheel on the flag, around and around and around and around, spiraling up the mountain towards the state of righteousness. That idea makes righteousness a long journey, but nonetheless, it does make it as an achievable journey for the human agent or the creature, right? Because you start off as something less and progress into humanity and then through the castes of humanity towards final righteousness. Now, the way it reflects itself in the caste system, which incidentally is largely a Middle Eastern reality, not simply a Hindu reality, is debased and corrupt and to be rejected. Uh, but that idea of placing righteousness far off and heading towards it gets, gets the notion that righteousness is not immediately available, but it still holds on to the idea that we can achieve it. Okay, if we were going to step, and I don't know if this is a step towards the biblical picture or if it's another sideways step, like an alternative to Hinduism is the notion of Islam which would say this, that righteousness is something that, is, that we are not. We are not righteous. It recognizes that God is holy and that we are not holy. Many teachings in Islam about cleanliness and observance, it's very observant and humble before a holy God. But righteousness in that worldview embraces the notion that if you do a certain number of things, you can attain to God. So the challenge here, whereas in Hinduism, righteousness is so far off that it might take a hundred lifetimes to get there, that actually is more elegant to me than the notion that we are not righteous, but if we do five or six things well, we can get there. Uh, Either we'd say, well, either we become righteous by doing these five, you know, so there's the five pillars of Islam, you know, there is the declaration of who God is and the prophet Muhammad. There's the giving of alms. There's the fasting on Ramadan, the pilgrimage to Mecca, and alms to the poor. There's these five things. And encapsulated in these five things are other things that they do that have a lot to do with observance and cleanliness and humility before the Lord. There's this notion, if you do these things well, you get to be with God. And the, the, there's two challenges. Either there's a falsehood in saying, if we do these things well, they actually make us righteous, which we have to call into question. Or the notion is, is, well, it doesn't actually make us righteous. It's just good enough for God, which we have to call into question. So does the Lord wink at sin? Does the Lord go, that's about right for everybody but Hitler? Does everybody, about right. Is God, is, does it seem to us, in, does it seem to you in God's nature to eternally dwell with people who do not reflect his nature? Who don't really have righteousness in their hearts? That's the challenge with Islam is, is either there's profound amount of righteousness that's being imparted onto a human by doing some very 
simple things that, by the way, not everybody's able to do, uh, either because they're poor or just unfortunate. Or it's saying that God really doesn't care that much about true righteousness, and this is just kind of a, a rite of passage to say to the Lord, you wish you were righteous. That is how the world is answering the question of righteousness. It's either saying there is no such thing, or it's not important, or it's so far off, we've got to work through multiple lifetimes, or it's, uh, if we do these several things, we can be declared righteous or righteous enough to be with the Lord. But that's not what the Christian faith says. And, and, and this morning, we are at a pivot we're at the moment in God's word where, uh, where Paul's gonna, going to take a pivot and show us what real righteousness is. And I just want to place this before you as the church to say there is no faith on the earth that has done this. What we're going to do today that preserves the perfect, absolute holiness and justice of God and unites him with sinful people. So let's look. Romans chapter 3. I'm going to pick up in the ninth verse. And I'm going to read 9 through 20. This is a conclusion. If you're joining us today, we've been in this argument that Paul has been making for four or five, almost five weeks now. So this is the conclusion to the argument. And forgive me if we don't spend a lot of time on the conclusion of the argument. I desperately want to get to the pivot in 21. Um, But this is a good conclusion to the argument, so this should at least get us up to speed. Let me read verses 9 to 20. Paul says, What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Speaking of righteousness. Not at all. We have already made the charge that the Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, and he begins to quote several Psalms and the prophets, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So in this conclusion, he makes the point, there's no one righteous. And he says that the law, in fact, doesn't help us towards right, or does not achieve righteousness for us. Let me say it that way. It does not achieve righteousness for us, but along the way, it serves to further indict us. That you cannot, 
truly embrace the Ten Commandments, just as an example, you cannot fully embrace the Ten Commandments without becoming cognizant that you are in violation of them. This is what Paul does in the Sermon on the Mount. It is written, thou shalt not commit murder, but I say to you, see what Paul's doing? He's opening up the, the, the ramifications of embracing the law for righteousness. I say to you, if you've even looked at your brother and thought that he should be cursed, you're guilty of murder. It is written, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say to you, if you've even looked at another woman with lust in your heart, you're guilty of adultery. He's amplifying the implications of the law in the fact that the law peers into our heart, not simply to the actions of our hands, but to the inclination of our heart, and it makes judgments there. And he's saying, in our heart, we cannot meet the dictates of the law. So that the whole world he says, should be silenced and held accountable. I, I, I know we need to move. I do want to talk a little bit about these, these psalms that are pulled out, verses 10 through 18. I just want you to value what Paul's done here. If you look at 10 through 12, they're, they're notions, uh, Paul's simply making the, the statement of the universality of unrighteousness. So he's pulling out psalms that talk about that. So you have no one righteous, not one. No one who understands. No one who seeks God. All have turned away. Uh, There's no one who does good, not even one. There's this idea. But then watch what he does. He moves from there, and then from 13 on, it begins to talk about the nature of our sin. So 10 to 12 is the presence of sin in our life, but then 13 on is the nature of our sin. And he, 13 and 14, just listen to what he does. He talks about our, listen listen to the words of our body. Our throats, our tongues, our lips, and our mouths. He grabs those ideas. Throats, graves, tongues, deceit, lips, poison, mouths full of cursing. He condenses this idea. It's, you know, it's out of the mouth the heart speaks. I oftentimes find, just reflecting and meditating on this passage, that when I think of sin, I think of the things I do and not so much the things I say even though so often the things that come out of our mouths are sinful. And then from there he talks about their feet shed blood and their path is not right. And he ends with this, there's no fear of God before their eyes. This is the conclusion of this first argument. If you remember back several weeks ago, uh, I gave this example. I said, I want you to imagine you're getting ready to go into a courtroom and you're going to be judged for a crime. It, and it's a severe issue. And Paul the Apostle is your, your defending attorney. And before you go in, he says to you, do you trust me? And you say, yeah, I trust you. And he says, okay, just be quiet and sit and let me handle your defense. And you go in and you sit down in the dock and you're standing there, and the room is raucous, and it's, you can just tell the mob has already made its decision about you because we're so good at judging others. So the room knows that you're unrighteous. And you can see it in, 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 in just the eyes of the jurors that you're unrighteous, and you know this is not going to go well, that the court of public opinion is already out, but you're hoping that Paul's going to make a good defense for you, and he gets up and he turns straight to the judge and stares the judge in the eyes and points a finger back in your direction and says to your honor, my 
client is guilty. Not only is he guilty of the crime about what he's been charged, but it was a premeditated crime. He knew the law. He conspired against you in defiance of your truth. He's guilty. That's what these past several weeks have been doing, as Paul has been saying about the very people he loves and cares about, the very people to whom he's bringing this message of good news, he's been saying they're guilty. And he finally, you think right now, in verses 19 and 20, he's going to rest his case. If you were his client in the dock, cringing beneath his opening remarks, You'd get here when he says, and now that the whole world, every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable. It would be a bleak moment. If you can just imagine experiencing that moment. But he doesn't stop. He just pauses. He pauses and then he says this. Look at 21. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. He says for three chapters, you are unrighteous. And once it has been firmly, firmly demonstrated, he turns He pauses and turns and says, but now there is a new kind of righteousness, a righteousness that's from God, that's been promised through the law and the prophets. There's a righteousness from God that's offered for us. Just listen as we walk through. I'm going to read 22 through 24, and we're going to slow down, and we're going to walk through this together. This righteousness from God comes through faith in in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Okay, I want to stop there. Because it's like one idea. It's so compact that I I just want to let it breathe for a second. So the first thing I want us to see here in 21 and 22 is that the righteousness that Paul is now talking about is not our righteousness that we bring to God, but a righteousness that comes from God. Do you see that? But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known. This is, this is the big point. If you remember way back in the first chapter, before he began to talk about any of God's wrath or our unrighteousness, he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and also for the Gentile. For in the gospel is a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. He's returning to this idea and he's saying, in in mankind's desperate search for righteousness, we've been in the habit of bringing our measure of righteousness to the Lord. We bring what we've done and we've brought it to the Lord and we've said, is this good enough? This should be good enough. To which the Lord is saying, it is not good enough. So that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable. That that does not qualify as righteousness. That a just God cannot abide your unrighteous life in and of itself. But Paul then turns and says, but now there is a righteousness that comes from God on our behalf. It's given to us from God, and it comes through faith in Christ Jesus. That Christ is the path through which it comes. And it says this. 
that it is for everyone. This righteousness from God, this is 22, comes through faith in Christ Jesus. To who? To all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through redemption. This is, Paul is saying, that this righteousness that comes from God is for all people. In other words, it is not a Jewish rite of passage. It is a universal offering of righteousness. This is why the church goes to Moldova. This is why the church goes to Uganda. This is why the church goes to the homes in our neighborhood and to the underprivileged in Kennet and to Wilmington and all through. This is why the church does vacation Bible school is because we believe that there's a righteousness that is from God that is for all people. That's what we believe. Some people may say, well, if this righteousness is for everybody, well, then how come everybody doesn't know? Like, that doesn't seem right. Well, this, Paul asks the exact same question later on in the book. He says this, How can they, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless we are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. That verse is going to be an indictment for the church one day to have this good news and to hold on to it. Because this righteousness for God is for all people. It doesn't make a difference. He says, for all have sinned. This is a universal problem. God, Christ did not come to solve a Jewish question. Christ, Christ came to solve a question that Adam and Eve brought up. And then we see this, that we are freely justified, it says. That we're freely justified, which makes it sound like it is at no cost, but the the, the scriptures here are saying it comes at no cost to you and to me because it came at great cost to Christ. Do you see this? 24, and we are justified freely by his grace. How? Through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. In other words, the redemption, that's, that's the purchase, the purchasing. Christ redeemed us. He ransomed us. Christ paid the price. And as a result, we, have, we are freely justified in him. In other words, God's righteousness is available to us. It's available to us through faith in Christ Jesus because Christ Jesus has secured it for us and for all people. Should they have faith in him? Christ paid the cost. And then if we read 25 and 26, we're just building. This is, this is the point of the entire Bible, this paragraph. The whole Bible, this paragraph is the point of the entire Bible. If you've got to know one paragraph in the whole Bible, start here. 25, listen to this. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice. 
because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And now I know we have to slow down and work through that. I know there's alarms going off and question marks, so let's just walk through slowly. First of all, in 25, if some of you are reading other translations, instead of seeing God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement, you may see a squirrely word, God presented him as a propitiation. That's the word that's given there, as a propitiation. This is the notion that, that's being reflected here, is God gave his son... And the sacrifice of Christ covers, this is what propitiation means, is that it, it's a substitute, a worthy substitute sacrifice for the, something else that deserves wrath. That's what's being discussed here, is we are not made righteous in Christ. We are determined as righteous. We are given the righteousness of God. Now a righteousness from God is given. So when, when we come to know Christ, it isn't like the Lord does this magic spell and makes all the wrong you did right. It's every bit is wrong, but it is covered up by Jesus Christ. The word, all that you've done, in, in other words, has been bared, Christ has bared the penalty of. In fact, the same Greek word that means propitiation or sacrificial atonement that you see here, the very same Greek word is also used to translate the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant of God, which is the place that one day every year the priest would walk into and sprinkle blood on for the forgiveness of the people. Paul is saying, Christ is that. He's that. He, he is the blood that's sprinkled so that God does not see our sin. Now I want to stop here and I want to work, on, I want to work something out that I think kind of has roots in our life, and that is this. So we can have in our minds this picture that God is wrathful and that Jesus Christ stays off the wrath of God against sinful people. I've heard it this way, that God is angry with people. God is angry with you. This is how I've heard it preached even, that he's angry with you. And unless you have faith in Jesus Christ, you cannot escape his wrath, but his wrath is coming. I'd say that is not what is being taught here. Who sent Jesus? God. Do you see this? 25, God presented him. In other words, God presented Jesus Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. It is not, and now listen, I'm going to try to say it clearly and slowly. I think this is important. It is not as though God is, needs to be made willing to forgive and that the sacrifice of Christ makes God willing to forgive, that is not it. That's a pagan notion. That's a pagan notion of an angry God where we need to bring a, a sacrifice that will appease his anger. That is not the image of Scripture. The image of Scripture is that God himself is willing to forgive, but that he cannot abide with unrighteousness. It's a totally different picture. This is a picture of God who loves mankind, is willing to forgive, and is full of mercy, but he cannot abide with our unrighteousness. And so the divine Godhead turns to the divine Godhead, and they both in holy unity know what needs to happen. And the Father says to the Son, you are the only one who's worthy. And the Son says to the Father, I am worthy. 
and he climbs down into our outfit and climbs upon the cross and he spurns the guilt and wickedness of this world on the cross and makes a mockery of it on our behalf. That is the gospel. The gospel is not a story of an angry God who wants to judge us except for the fact that his son showed up at the 11th hour and saved us. It is a story of a loving God who desires to save us and whose own personhood bore the sacrifice so that he could be both graceful and merciful and just so that no one could point a finger at the Lord and say, well, he just made light of sin. The scriptures say, no, he did not make light of sin. He took sin very seriously, so seriously, in fact, that that his own son gave his life to pay for the penalty of that sin so that God can at the same time show mercy to sinful people and be fully just. And there is no religion that has ever existed on the face of this earth that can save that. This is it. This is what Paul says. He says, he did it, verse 26, he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time. So to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. People get wrapped around the axle. And why is Christianity exclusive? Why do we have to believe in Jesus Christ? First of all, if you look at this text, it's for everybody. The Christianity is the most universal of all religions. God cares about everybody. The question is, why would you not trust in Jesus Christ? What is, let me ask you this, if you're on the outside of the faith, what is in the way? What's wrong with what was just read? Are you denying your unrighteousness? It's exclusive to those who receive it. God came to save every human being on the face of the planet as long as they trust in Jesus Christ and receive it. It is universal and exclusive. What's the problem with that? What has God done wrong so as to not warrant our faith and following? He drives us home, 27. Where then is the boasting? Is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. He's saying, how can we brag? We can't brag because we bring nothing. We're not bringing our righteousness. We're receiving his righteousness. How can we brag about that? He says, if we're going to boast, boast in the Lord. Four and 28, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by the same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Now, he begins to open up an idea that we're going to continue in subsequent Sundays, but he's essentially saying it's through faith in Jesus Christ that the law comes to life. For us, instead of being an agent of death, becomes an agent of life. I want to close with this thought. So I feel like it has been a burden. I've dr- my dread in teaching Romans is I knew that for four or five weeks straight, we would say to the church, you're sinful. Just consistently. You're unrighteous. You know, and if visitors would come in, I have to think they're going to come to church one Sunday and hear you're unrighteous. 
And not just once, right? But the subject is you're unrighteous. You're unrighteous. You're unrighteous. Week after week, we've been saying you're unrighteous. You're unrighteous. You're unrighteous. And so I, I celebrate the fact that now we get to, but now a righteousness from God has been made known through the law and the prophets, which comes through faith in Jesus Christ and is freely given to those who have faith because it's God's gift to us. For God sent his son. And so I, I, I rejoice that both pieces sit. But I also know, and I challenge, I challenge those of you who are on the fringe or not calling yourself a follower to say, what, is, what are you rejecting? You have to be placed to a choice now for those who have faith. That's the decision that's being put to you. Do you have faith in Jesus Christ? Are you relying on Christ to stand over you at judgment so that you will be seen as innocent because he has taken on your guilt? That's the question that is before you. But I want to close with this, this notion because it's been true with, in, in a small way in my own life is anytime, maybe you're in the faith. Let me just assume you're a Christian for now but maybe you have been wrapped up about your sinfulness. In in other words, because we've spent five weeks on the same subject, maybe you've begun to think it's the big idea. Or maybe it has nothing to do with the sermon series. Maybe for you, this happens for Christians, is sin and unrighteousness becomes the big idea. And I'm here to say, it's not the big idea of the faith. It is a preliminary argument to get to the main argument, which is Jesus Christ is the salvation for all who believe. But what happens sometimes is some people on the front end get caught up in this notion of their unrighteousness and they kind of like Eeyore, they're stuck there. Like, I can't, I'm just nothing, I can't do anything right or I'm just not worthy or there it is again or I sin or sin habit and all that. And I know there's things, at some other Sunday I have to wag a finger at a sinful addiction or something, but I'm just saying today, right now today, the Lord is saying, I know you're unrighteous. Just close your mouth because a righteousness from God has been given to you. It's just given to you. Why wouldn't you reject that? Why wouldn't your soul just eat that up? Why wouldn't you pick yourself off your sinful floor and say, like Paul does in the eighth chapter, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or why wouldn't you just say what he says later when he says, we are more than conquerors in Christ. Why would you, as a Christian, wallow in the second chapter of this book or the third chapter of this book when you can spring into the righteousness which comes from God? That's my prayer for us all, is for those of you who are not in the faith that you would draw close to Christ and for those of you who are in the faith that you would live in the main point and not in the preliminary argument of your unrighteousness. Will you pray with me? Lord, you are so good. When I think of your gift of your son, Lord, I think of, when I just think of the way that this unity of the Trinity is is so giving to itself. Father, we are brought low to worship.
Lord, I do pray for the person who's captivated, just captivated by their sin. I pray that they would feel the bright sun of God's mercy on them. I pray for the person who rejects their sinfulness entirely. I pray that they would be brought low. I pray that they would be brought to a conviction that they are not righteous and a good and holy God cannot abide with unrighteous people. And Lord, I pray that they would see the work of Christ Jesus for what it is. Lord, I pray that they might be in a place to simply say, Lord, forgive me. I am not righteous. I am choosing to depend on Jesus Christ. And then they would feel and receive the salvation which comes through Jesus Christ, which is given by you in your rich mercy. Lord, I pray you put your spirit in them to give them a confidence to know that they are more than conquerors now, that they are your adopted sons. They are now co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Father, I pray this all would be true, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.